This is exactly right. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So, I was in college, but it was the summer of my, of my sophomore year or, or freshman year. And I had gone to a BBD concert yeah. and met Jeff Dyson, who was new, one of New Edition's, um, he had long time been a New Edition bodyguard. He was on the road with, with BBD. Last time on Waiting for Impact, my friend Scott and I found out we were one degree of separation closer to sudden impact than we ever knew we were. We have a friend who was a recording artist in Michael Bivens' East Coast family. And you know her too. It's 2021 Emmy nominee Yvette Nicole Brown. And I told him, I said, I want to sing for Michael Bivens. Can you please let me backstage? Like me in 1991, Yvette had big dreams. But unlike me, she knew how to manifest them. And he was like, I cannot let you backstage, but I can tell you that they're staying at the, the Sheridan in Cuyahoga Falls. So if you happen to show up, you know, at the Sheridan, you didn't hear it from me. Uh-huh. To this day, I know Jeff now. Um, I, you know, Jeff and I are friends now. And, and to this day, he says he doesn't know why he did it. He was just like... I don't know, something about you just felt like I was supposed to help you. Yvette loved Michael Biffins. She loved New Edition. She loved Belle Biv DeVoe. And she loved to sing. So she found Michael Biffins and she sang. And so I went to that hotel, stayed in the lobby until four o'clock in the morning when when BBD came to the um, hotel. And I followed Michael Bivens around and I was like, Mr. Bivens, may I sing for you? Mr. Bivens, may I sing for you? Mr. Bivens, may I sing for you? And then finally he was like, oh gosh, like just sing. He was mad. I was mad. Like, it had been uh-huh. a, an, an opus to get to this moment. That's the thing about taking big swings. Sometimes they're mortifying, but sometimes they actually work. He finally let me sing for him and um, asked for my number and then called me the next day and invited me to be a part of the East Coast family. We're going to talk to Yvette Nicole Brown about her time in the East Coast family, about what it was like to wait for your moment in the spotlight as a singer, and about what you do when it never comes. And we're going to find out what she knows about Sudden Impact. Also, we'll talk to Karen Kilgariff. She and I were leading more or less the same life back in 1991. So we're going to talk about what she learned that got her to where she is now. And we're going to talk about another big thing we have in common. A pivotal career moment that involves losing a big contest on national TV. This is Waiting for Impact, a Dave Holmes passion project. So here's where we left off as I began my search for sudden impact. My friend and fellow pop culture obsessive Scott Gimple found a 1992 music video from the East Coast family, a group of pop, 
R&B, and hip-hop artists signed by Michael Bivens to his record label Biv 10, a subsidiary of Motown. The song and video are called One For All For One. By the way, the title of that song never gets any easier to say. You always have to kind of prepare your mouth. But it is what we would now call a posse track. There are rap moments from Mark Finesse, from two young kids called 1010, who have their suspenders on backwards. A little like the other young rap duo of the time, Criss Cross, probably a coincidence. And from MC Brains, who would go on to have a top 40 hit later in 1992, called Uchi Coochie. There are moments that are sung by a big frat boy looking guy named Hayden, with a sport coat slung over his shoulder. And by a group called White Guys, W-H-Y-T-G-I-Z-E who look a little like Sudden Impact. And then there's a young woman with a clear and beautiful voice and a warm and familiar smile. She goes by the single name Yvette. It's Yvette Nicole Brown. I can't stress to you just how my jaw just dropped. My friend Scott, who we met in the last episode, is the chief content officer for the Walking Dead universe. And Yvette is a Walking Dead super fan. Yvette and Scott, as we learned, are real friends in real life. But this is a part of her story that he didn't know anything about. And we now have the connection to the East Coast family and maybe sudden impact that we've been looking for. A backstage pass, if you will. So I asked Scott to reach out to Yvette to see if she'd be interested in opening up about her life in the East Coast family. And while we waited for an answer, I wanted to go a little bit deeper into the early 90s and what life was like for a young dreamer back then. And I know someone who I bet has some very good insights. What was Karen's 1991 aesthetic? Talk, talk, what, what's she wearing? Uh, Jesus H. <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you. It's not good news. That is Karen Kilgariff. She's a comedian, a writer, the co-host of My Favorite Murder, and the co-founder of Exactly Right, the network I'm doing this podcast on. In 1991, Karen was working a look. Because I was out of the house and I could, so first of all, I dyed my hair black like the second I got a chance to. That was incredibly, like, invigorating and, like, you know, I can do what I want. Uh, I dyed my hair black. Um, I was pale as a ghost. Karen's a friend of mine now, but in 1991, we were strangers, leading very similar lives. I started working at The Gap, and that really, that felt bad. That yeah, felt real okay. bad. Again, we're on parallel tracks. Did you work uh, at The Gap? Did I ever. Ugh. The winner of, of Navy and Whitecap, I was there. <laughs> what is Whitecap, I asked? They said white. It's just a it's different just, word for white. It's a way to say white and yeah. really set yourself apart. In 1991, in separate malls, in separate cities, 2,000 miles away from each other, Karen and I were doing the same thing. Suffering through eight-hour shifts, pushing pocket t-shirts and high-waisted jeans, listening to four or five spins per day of that corporate mixtape, dreaming about the lives and careers we would have someday. Lives and careers we couldn't even picture, because they didn't even really exist yet. Back then, we were on the outside with our noses pressed up against the glass. Right now, Karen is a big deal. Like few other people I know, she went out and got her life. But in 1991, we were both very busy daydreaming about what our lives in the future could look like. And we were both hard at work, fucking up our lives in the present. Who <laughs> was Karen Kilgariff in the summer of 1991? Oh, God. Well, I had just turned 21. Oh, boy. 
I was living in Sacramento at the time. I had flunked out of Sacramento State University. Congratulations. Um, thank you so much. Not easy to do. Uh, it took dedication and it took uh, real know-how and perseverance to, to um, be asked to leave a state school that was basically took all comers and didn't give a shit. Now, once again, Karen and I were leading parallel lives there. We'll get into that shortly. But in order to give her life some direction and stop feeling bad about failing out of school, Karen tried something new. The good part about this era was just before it, when I was 20, I started doing stand-up comedy as a desperate move to stop being such a loser who had flunked out of school and just had and basically was kind of going nowhere in the Central Valley. So I think by the time my 21st birthday rolled around, I had felt that I'd actually be, begun on my path toward my dream, which was always kind of a secret. Like I really knew I wanted to be a stand-up comedian for a long time, but I just didn't believe I would ever do it. And then this kind of amazing combination of good and bad things happened. And then I got to start. Karen transferred to Sacramento City College, where she met some cool artsy kids from the theater department. Can't you just see them? Her new friends were more edgy and mature. It was a new, better support system. And like any good 90s artsy kids, we have to imagine them smoking cloves. At night, she's beginning to do stand-up. But in the daytime, it's the gap. There is an oppressive feeling I used to get in the middle of like an eight hour shift, you know, right. the mixtape that would play and it would be oh, on yeah. like the fourth cycle where mm -hmm. I, you'd just be going a little bit crazy. And I would be standing there kind of staring at like the fluorescent lights going, how much longer are you going to do this? Like, <laughs> is this going to be the rest of your life? Yeah. Because, because there's part of you that was at least brave enough to get on that stage and tell eight of what are now some of the worst jokes <laughs> of all time. But, you know, like I did have that leg up that that I had done. So there was a little bit in me that was like, but I, I think I can do something. I don't think I should have to work at the Gap for the rest of my life. But then there was parts of some of the time when I was there where I was just like, I can't breathe and I'm going to be here forever. I know that feeling extremely well. And I remember that what I wanted from life back then was vague. I wanted to express myself, make a mark on the world somehow. I wonder, what did she want back then? I think fame. The idea, the made-up childhood idea of what fame is and uh -huh. what um, and what all that kind of glory would be. What is that child version of fame? I think it's like... <laughs> It's like entering anywhere through double doors and like putting your hands out in front of you is literally like the, the it's kind of that, kind, like as if you'd go yeah. into restaurants that only had double doors and it's like, hello, everyone. There is She's the, here. Oh, hi. Yes, it's me. I'm here. <laughs> Waving as you eat dinner kind of idea. Uh -huh. I think that was, that was part of it. But I do think it was holding my own with men who do comedy. Karen was learning stand-up, finding her place in the Bay Area comedy scene, looking for clues. 
the improv was my first one where I got on stage. So it was kind of like the closest one to my heart. And it felt so, because it was one of those um, clubs that was downstairs. So it was really like cellar feeling, which the, you know, all the walls were painted black. You could only, you, I could see one top, Matt, the bartender was really tall and he had like bleach blonde hair. So I would focus on watching his head move during my sets to know if, whether or not I was doing good. So if he was like doing head, head bobbing, like laughing, I was like, all right, so I'm fine. Like, uh, you yeah. know, there's there's all these kind of vi- images in my brain that are seared there forever of how I'm going to do this thing that's really hard and incredibly frightening and make it work. So those magical things were happening to me at, at night. And then at 11 a.m., I'd have to show up and fold down a sweater wall or whatever yeah. and go back to just being the person that's trying to sell you socks along with your three t-shirts and it was just I was very indignant about the fact that that I had to work there but that also it was such a corporate it was so easy to do things wrong at the Gap I, I was wrong all the time I was always doing it wrong you know yeah, there is one way to fold a pocket too <laughs> for real yeah they'll check it and then a big moment happened on TV America's Funniest People comes calling <laughs> how dare you we don't did have to talk do about re- it if you don't want to. Did you do research? <laughs> Karen, I saw it. <laughs> Let me set the scene. Karen had been getting better at stand-up. She had been coming up with a group of friends. Andy Kindler, Vernon Chapman, Brian Posehn. Maybe you've heard of them. She entered a comedy contest at a club in Sacramento, and she made it to the finals. And then... And at some point there, the manager of that comedy club was like, hey, America's Funniest People's in town. Um, come to Old Sack and they just, you basically just do some jokes on camera. And so one of my bits was, I was at, it was, it was my impression of a cheerleader auditioning for a Shakespeare play. Mm-hmm. So essentially it's a classic fucking hacky stand-up thing where you recite something impressive in a different voice. Right. Um, so I was just doing a Valley Girl voice. Um, of Richard I.I.I. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that's what ended up on <laughs> America's Funniest People. So, I mean, the answer is yes. We are going to listen to some of Karen Kilgariff on America's Funniest People. I'm presenting my version of a cheerleader auditioning for a Shakespeare play. Okay, so, like, I'm auditioning for this or whatever, and I'm going to be doing a, a monologue from, like, Richard I, I, I. And, like, what it is is um, I'm Lady Annette, and, like, this guy totally killed my husband, Richard, and so he comes to the funeral just to make problems, just like Rick Baird did that time at the party when he's going to throw the keg through the window. Do you remember that? Well, anyway, so, like, he totally shows up, and I totally get mad, and I totally say this to him. I go, like, I go, like, foul devil, for God's sake, hence, and trouble us not, for thou it's made the happy earth thy hell, filled it with cursing cries and deep exclaims. If thou delight to view thy heinous deeds, behold the pattern of of your butcheries. <laughs> Not what she would do now, probably, but it's funny. Her perspective is very clear. If you want to see more, it is on YouTube, and it's worth watching. It's like a Muppet Baby's version of the Karen Kilgariff we know now. And then I got called by the producers saying, do you want to come down to Burbank because you made it to the final three? So all of a sudden... You know, and that I recorded it well in Sacramento, and then got into a car accident. My mom's like, "That's it. You're moving home. You're just up there, fucking around." I moved home and got the call like from my parents' house. So again, basically, after having flunked out, I floated for a little while in this comedy thing that was happening, and then I was like back 
moved back in with my parents. So almost like a new low. But then the, the America's Funniest People called. So now I'm back up in like showbiz time. And uh, I flew down to that show, sat in the audience. It was, you know, like the drum roll with the fun. Dave, Dave Coulier was one of the hosts. Uh-huh. It was Sorkin. like the whole thing. TV's Calliope. I, Calliope from Days of Our Lives. It was a dream come true. In the video, Karen is right there in that studio audience in that very chic, jet black 1991 hair. And Karen does not win. Um, I won third prize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a four-year-old girl beat me. Um, and a man... <laughs> she knew? She said a joke. She goes, what did the farmer say when he lost his tractor? Where's my tractor? That's not funny, That Karen. was... I know. That's no, she's funny. talented. She was good. She was, she deserved it. Um, Ashley Tisdale and then, now. And the man, <laughs> probably, I bet we could tra- track her down <laughs> to who it is now. And that girl is Ariana Grande. <laughs> the guy who won the big prize was a 70-year-old guy dressed like a miner from old cowboy movies. He did a strip tease to MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This, and he won $10,000. But Karen didn't walk away empty-handed. I think I got $4,000 before taxes. But I mean, that's early 90s money. That's not bad. It was, you know what it is? It got me out of my parents' house and into my apartment to move to San Francisco to work at The Gap and start stand-up again with a... <laughs> it, it basically relaunched my barely be, having begun stand-up career. Where did you see yourself as an adult in that situation? Like, what, what did I think I was going to do? Yeah. yeah. Where would you I, have imagined you'd be now? Honestly, I kind of like, this is the dream. I, yeah. I'm doing it and I'm thrilled and thrilled every day about it. And has a career in comedy looked the way that you imagined it would in 1991? The thing that I didn't understand is that that everybody that moves to Los Angeles is baseline talented at least one thing, but there is a, a ton of people here who are un- insanely talented at like four things. And that, they, I, I think I had, that was the part that I was the most wrong about was, oh, like I'm super funny and I know a bunch of really super funny comics and we're like the funniest people. And it's like, no, 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 there's actors who also are from Broadway who are 10 times funnier than you. Like those, those lessons as I lived in Los Angeles and became intensely bewildered at the level of true talent that comes to this town and tries to make it. I just wanted it to be like, no, I'm a natural and, you know, I'm the best or whatever. But it was like quickly learning that like you want to you want to tell yourself that like those pretty hot girls that are going in just for the the ingenue roles aren't funny. They fucking are. They're funny. They can tap dance and they're models. So yeah. go fuck yourself, Karen <laughs> from Petaluma, because your shit ain't flying. You know, there was that. Yeah. Lots of adjustments like that that were yeah. really bewildering. But then I think, thank God, somewhere along the line, that idea came to me as like, if I want to be in this business, I should learn the business so that I know what I'm doing and not just be standing out here trying to be like an actor or a comic because those people have the least amount of power or control. And that's what led me into writing. And that's what led me into being behind the scenes and learning how it actually works and what the real business is. Yeah. And you've been, I mean, you've had many, many ups and downs. Like, you know, there were (laughs) things that, you know, there, 
America's Funniest People. I mean, it 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 launched a career, but it was, you know, <laughs> you weren't plucked immediately from that to superstardom. So how did yeah. how did you keep what did you tell yourself to keep going? Um, I told myself I was funnier than that four-year-old girl every yeah. goddamn day. <laughs> I want to get back to something Karen said at the beginning of our conversation. Karen flunked out of college. So did I. I left for college in 1989, a place called Holy Cross in Massachusetts. I'd been on the waiting list, and I think that is why I was so determined to go there. You don't like me? Perfect. Let me chase you. I got there. I was surrounded by people who looked like they had it together, which I very much did not. People who were good at being normal, which I very much was not. A lot of kids from New England where making fun of you is how they show affection, but it's also how they, you know, make fun of you. Holy Cross is a great place. I did not fit in there. This is a thing I would find out later. Early in the first semester of my freshman year, a bunch of the guys in my hall apparently had a big conversation in the common area about whether I was gay, which I very much was, and still am. And at the time, I was very much not ready to deal with it. In this conversation, a classmate from my hometown apparently confirmed that, yes, the general word on the street was that I was very gay. That kid apparently called another kid from my high school who double confirmed it. And if you've worked in journalism, you know a fact is not considered credible unless it can be double verified. So I was out. I was outhead. Now, I was not in the common area on my hall the day this conversation took place. I wasn't on campus at all uh, because I had gone to the local mall to go to a record store called Sam Goody to pick up a cassette that had just been released. And it was sitting on my desk later that day when my roommates and some of the guys from the hall gathered to go get dinner. And that tape was the album Results by Liza Minnelli, which was produced by the Pet Shop Boys and has a Sondheim song on it. So uh, my gayness was now a triple-sourced story. Anyway, the guys on my hall, who I thought I'd been doing okay with, suddenly began to keep their distance. That's what life was like in 1989 at a Catholic school, and that's probably why this Catholic school in 1989 had zero out gay students. I was having trouble making friends for the first time in my life. What middle-aged Dave can see very clearly is what I should have done, which is just say, yes, yeah, I'm gay. Do you have any questions? But I didn't. What I did instead was spiral. I was out every night, drinking like a maniac. I skipped class on the regular. I was crying for help and pretending everything was great all at the same time. It was exhausting. I didn't do well. A couple weeks into the summer of 1990, after I'd finished freshman year, I was at my parents' house in St. Louis. I went to check the mailbox, and there was a certified mail notice. 01610, the zip code of Holy Cross. And I just knew. I had never failed at anything in my life. And suddenly there it was, a massive, humiliating, public failure. Karen puts the feeling into words better than I can. Did it feel like flunking out of college, which I also did? Oh, did you? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What After college? my freshman year, Holy Cross in Massachusetts. <laughs> nice. Yes. Very conservative, Catholic place where I did not fit in at all. And they vomited me out very quickly. However... <laughs> Um, it, it was actually, it was like a one year suspension. And so I did went like go and get my grades up. And then I went, because I felt like I have to finish what I've started. I went back, which was a mistake. And sure. I, I delayed my actual maturity by many, many years. <laughs> and it was for me, very difficult to, to scrub off the, the scent of failure. <laughs> yeah. 
Is that does that resonate with you at all? A thousand percent. Yeah, I never saw myself when I was a child. I was uh, smart and good at school. Yeah. Always liked it, and that lasted right until seventh grade, and then it all changed. And along with like puberty and adolescence came this kind of like I don't. I'm not the smartest one in the class. Therefore, none of this is worth my time. Or like, I can't stand out and I'm not standing out in the smart way. I'm not standing out in like the pretty way. I'm I'm trying to be loud and funny, but that isn't very appealing to anyone anymore. Like it was one of those kinds of things where I just didn't, um, I just didn't know what I was doing really or or how to do anything. So I didn't see myself as the kind of person who would like flunk or fail or disappoint her parents. Same. When it started happening, it really did feel like I'm sliding backwards down a mountain and I can't stop myself and I can't do anything about it. So I might as well just stay in bed, drink some beer. You know what I mean? Like just dig all the way into this failure act if I'm going to fail. I definitely got lost in a loser moment for a while after this happened. I was able to pull myself out of the downward spiral eventually, but still, more than three decades later, the scent of failure is still something I catch on myself. It's still my reflex to think of myself as a failure, to focus on the things I haven't succeeded at instead of the things I have. Now, thanks to therapy and the wisdom of age, I can shake it off when I feel it on me. But it gets on me, still. And I can't help but notice something. When I look at Sudden Impact, even though that moment in that Motown Philly video is all I ever saw them do, I don't think of them as failures. What I see is a big launch that didn't pan out. What I see is some guys who had a plan and it didn't happen, and now I just want to know what they're doing. I see them as people who might have succeeded in a way that I couldn't see, and I want to know what that way is. I have a certain amount of curiosity and goodwill for them and for their story that I can't muster for me or for mine. Maybe that's why I'm so obsessed. I want to play something for you. Okay. Um, it's not uh, America's funniest people. <laughs> Thank God. Here, there they are. Yes. Sudden impact. Yes. Just, yeah. Do you remember this video at all? Yes, I do. The Motown Philly video where it's everybody, they go yeah. through and it's like a, yeah. It's the East Coast family. It's the- <laughs> perhaps having a reunion, even though they just da, 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 came together. BBC, DDT. Yeah. I don't know the, the exact word. That's the one. Yeah. So this is sudden mm-hmm. impact. We are, we are tracking them down. Do you have a favorite? I mean, if I had to pick, and I love, first of all, this has always lifelong been my favorite thing of picking a favorite guy in a band. Yes. And and yeah. people fighting about it or discussing it or whatever, where I remember I would do like, for Duran Duran, obviously John Taylor, the guitarist, was the hottest and the one I liked, but that's mm-hmm. the one everyone picked. So I was like, I like Roger the drummer. So because Me too, I knew- Karen. <laughs> Dave, we are soulmates. Absolute soulmates. I, um... Yeah, no, absolutely. From the jump, it was Roger. Some people divide the world up into astrological signs. I do it by who's your favorite member of Duran Duran. And I knew Karen was a Roger. All the best people are Rogers. Yep. I I was just like, sure, it's a given you're going to like John Taylor. He looks like almost like a big girl, which everybody (laughs) loves in rock and roll. Like there's something about that that's so soothing to a young girl's soul. But what's this Italian doing over here? Mm -hmm. What's this little guy that's, that's holding down the rhythm section. Yeah, who looks a little out of place and uncomfortable. He looks and like he hates it, which I love. Like he hates it. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it's so when he becomes the first to leave, it's not surprising at all. 
<laughs> no, I was proud of him. Yeah. He goes yeah. and lives on a farm and it's just like, I don't, guys, cocaine is bad. <laughs> Let's not do it anymore. Guys, you're doing too go much and you all, you now look like middle-aged women. <laughs> Um, okay, so wait, let me look at this. I'll yeah. my glasses on so I can really see. Sure, sure, yeah. And you're going to want to look close. But the, did these guys re- release a video or like, is there a reference of any kind of me knowing them that would? No. Okay. That's the whole thing is that this is what they did. Oh. So uh, my understanding is that they have continued to make music in some way or another, but I don't know where they are. And, and this was such a massive like platform to be given really before you've done anything. And then kind of nothing happened, which is fascinating to me. And then we get to the point of this show, which is the point in the Motown Philly video, which I never get tired of looking at. I got to pick the guy in the center with the bow tie, which makes me think he's somehow the lead something. Maybe. Or Or he is smart enough to know to set himself apart. Yeah. Barbara Streisand style. And it is a tuxedo um, shirt, if you look closely. Okay. It is a tuxedo shirt. And it's it's definitely, it's an Italian restaurant waiter. Yeah, look. I was going to say, did he have to pick up a couple tables after this shoot? <laughs> and he had to go straight to his dad's restaurant? And it's, that might have been the take. You know, that might have yeah. been the only take. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're young, they're full of promise. It's 1991. What advice do you have for Sudden Impact about a life in the arts? You know, don't be afraid of a safety net. If you have a, if you have an accounting degree, that's great. <laughs> if you don't put all your eggs in one sudden impact basket, which hopefully they didn't, but like that was the thing that I did really did learn coming to Los Angeles as a stand-up comedian uh, that I better get some other um skills going very quickly. Like learn learn things, have someone teach you how to write sketches, how to write scripts, how to be an assistant, something else. But like flexibility, I guess, resilience, adaptability would be uh, my advice. That's the key. So maybe the boys of Sudden Impact did just take a more practical path. Maybe they went back to school or maybe they're still grinding it out now. I have no idea. But at long last, after three decades... I know someone who might. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. While Sudden Impact have existed in my mind as a symbol, a moment from a music video, a mystery I've never known how to solve, for Yvette Nicole Brown, they're friends, co-workers, East Coast family siblings, 
You know Yvette from Community, from Drake and Josh, from generally being the best thing about whatever she's in. But she's also a singer. She was a part of Michael Biven's East Coast family with sudden impact. My friend Scott put me in touch with Yvette. And what's fascinating is that she got her dream life and then got a new dream life because she walked up and asked for it. Karen and I were dreaming and folding denim in 1991. Yvette was manifesting. Did you, did you just always want to sing? Oh gosh, you couldn't tell me I wasn't going to be a singer. Really? I, I, oh man, I grew up loving Michael Jackson and Jackson 5. And um, mm-hmm. I was, I, I'm not that old, everybody. I found them, they were already grown. And as they were the Jacksons, by the time I was fo- born and realized what the Jackson 5 was and how amazing it was. Um, and I listened to just a lot of old R&B, um, like, well, it's old now, but it was like 80s R&B when I was a kid. And I just loved music and I loved singing. And I thought I was going to be, and, and one of my favorite groups was New Edition. And right. my thought was, if I'm going to marry one of them, I need to be on tour with them. And so yeah. the only way I could ensure that is for me to sing. So that was one of the other reasons why I wanted to be a singer, because I wanted to marry somebody in New Edition. So there you go. There's my secret. New Edition were the biggest boy band since the Jackson 5. They were so big, when they fired their manager, he went out and started a new boy band just out of spite, and that boy band was New Kids on the Block. More on that later. But New Edition were huge in 1984, and like with Duran Duran, you had to have a favorite. So now it can be told, like, who in New Edition? I loved two. I loved Ralph and I loved Michael. Those were my two favorites. I loved them all, but if I was going to marry someone, it would have been those two. Okay, so you had a double bias. In yeah, K-pop I mean, it was, terms. I mean, Ralph was first and Mike was second, and and Michael knows this, so it's, I'm not telling tales out of school. I'm not. <laughs> he's not finding out here that he wasn't my favorite. New edition had been put together by music producer Maurice Starr, who got them in a recording studio, released their debut album Candy Girl, and when a couple of the singles started selling well in Europe, sent them off on a world tour. They came back from that tour, and Starr mailed them a check for their year plus of hard work. That check was for one dollar and eighty-seven cents. Not five checks, one check for them all to split. I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but adjusted for inflation, that is... Yeah, no, that's still some bullshit. So they fired Maurice Starr. They moved to MCA Records. They released the album New Edition, which went double platinum in the States. They released five more hit albums. And then they took a break in the late 80s. The individual New Edition guys began to go their separate ways when Bobby Brown went solo. Then his replacement, Johnny Gill, did the same. Then lead singer Ralph Tresvant. That left the other three, Ricky Bell, Michael Bivens, and Ronnie DeVoe, to form Bell Biv DeVoe, who blew up in 1990 with the album Poison. And listen, I tried a lot of things when I was trying to break into this business, but there is one thing I never thought of doing, and it's just going up to my hero and demanding a job. Yvette sang for Michael Bivens in a hotel lobby, and then he called her up and signed her to his label. So tell me where where you're feeling that in your body when you get the call. I mean, it's, you know, my whole, my whole, everything just like uh, lights up at the thought of that. Because one thing I didn't tell you about it, meeting him, the Cuyahoga Falls Sheridan was one of those um, atrium hotels. So like the center of the hotel, you can look all the way up and see all the floors. So the, it's like a big square and you can look up, right? Right. So every time I asked Mike to sing for me, I asked when he walked in the door, when he was getting his key from the front desk, as he went to the elevator, he said no to me like three times. So he got on the elevator and went up to like the sixth or seventh floor. And as he gets off the elevator, I hear singing coming from the sixth or seventh floor. And I look up and there's Michael Bivens letting somebody sing for him. So I get on the elevator and I punch it. I get off the floor 
and he's just finishing up listening to someone. And I said, you know, it's really messed up that I've been asking you. And I really would like to sing for you, sir. And I mean, sir, he was like, <laughs> he was a kid too, but I'm like, sir. <laughs> and so he said, well, just go on and sing then. And so I sang angrily. He listened angrily. He took my number angrily. Like it was a really like contentious you know, situation, but he was like, I gotta get her number because she actually can sing. Like, and he was looking for talent. What's truly wild about this story is Yvette's absolute certainty about it. Not just now, but then. It's not like she went to apply for a job. The job was hers and she knew it. She just went to pick it up. There's one other thing about it, Dave. The fall, whatever year, I think it was a freshman year, sophomore year of college, is the same year that um, Michael discovered Boys to Men. And Michael yeah. was on BT with Boys to Men, introducing them to the world. And I was in college watching BT, and I said to my roommate, my friend Nikki, I said, "He's going to manage me." I'm like, "I'm, I'm Michael's going to manage me," mm-hmm. and she was like, "Sure." Yeah. I felt in my heart, I'm like, "He's going to manage me." Like I just knew, I didn't know how yeah. it was going to happen. I just knew that he was part of my destiny. Like whatever I was going to be in entertainment, that Michael Bivens was part of it. I could just feel it. Yeah, I could just feel and- it. And you manifested it. Yeah. Or God knew it was going to happen and put it in my mind. So so you get signed to, um, Motown, to Motown, Biv 10. Mm-hmm. Biv 10. Mm-hmm. And then, then what happens? We do a video. We do a song uh-huh. and we do a video. And that's where we worked with, well, they were, they were the white guys by the time I did the video. They started as Sudden Impact. Aha, I knew it. Sudden Impact became white guys. And now I have a thousand more questions for Southern Impact slash white guys. Another bad creation. So many great, uh, talented people. We did our video. Bivens put Yvette, Hayden, and another singer into a vocal group together. We were put in a group called Different, and we were brought out my my junior year, I think. Um, yeah, the, the summer of my junior year of college, we were brought and out to California. You're still in school? Yeah, I was still in school. Um, we were brought out to California to record. And so I spent um, the summer of my junior year out here. And we were like just hanging out around the pool and going to parties. Like we hadn't recorded yet. And it was coming up on the middle of August. And I said to Mike, I said, you know, I got one more year of school. Like I'm almost, almost have my degree. Like I need to, I need to go back and do this. And so he was like, well, go home, finish your degree. You can come back and we'll do it you know, after. And then, of course, by then, you know, the music industry changed. As the early 90s became the mid-90s, popular music got a little dirtier. I Love Your Smile by Shanice became Freak Like Me by Adina Howard. MC Hammer, whose 1990 song, You Can't Touch This, was so wholesome, it won a 70-year-old guy $10,000 on America's Funniest People, by 1994, was doing a song called Pumps and a Bump, with a video that features him in a Speedo. The video's on YouTube. Watch at your own risk. Sexy Jams was just not a direction Yvette wanted to go in. She wanted to do uplifting, almost gospel-style R&B music. So her time as a singer never really came. Are you frustrated during this time, like while you're signed and... and You know, I wasn't frustrated, but I'm someone that likes to be efficient. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like, you know, laying out by the pool is fun and going to these parties is fun and it's great to be around Michael and stuff. But my dream or my mother's dream even more than mine was for me to graduate from college. And I wanted that for myself. I wanted that for her. And I had put in three good years and I, I had scholarships and Pell Grants and, you know, I really worked hard. I had, had work study all through college. So I earned, you know, the right to be there. And I felt like 
though it was fun to be out in LA, if we're not recording, I I don't need to be here. I need to be recording. Right. So it was the frustration of it not being an efficient amount of time spent. So at, at what point did you say music is not happening? I've always felt like, you know, you race towards the thing that's racing towards you. Mm-hmm. And so um, music just didn't like me that much. It just wasn't, you know, it thought I was cute. Yeah. But it didn't, it didn't like me like that, right? Yeah. Where acting loves me. Like acting thinks I'm great. And so when I started auditioning for commercials and, and that started to take off, I was like, well, this is what it should be. The dream of singing receded into the background while the dream of acting took over. But singing never completely disappeared. And this is the funny thing, Dave. I sing on just about every show I get. Every every show that I've been a series regular on, I've sung on. Every yeah. single one. So the gift is still being used. And I, I do a lot of cartoons, a lot of kids shows, a lot of cartoons. And I've been singing on all of those as well. So it's not like it's gone. It just didn't manifest in the way that I thought it would. Yvette is at peace with the way her career turned out. She didn't get to be a big, famous singer, but it's not because of anything she did or Michael Bivens did. The world was just a different place back then. We were very young and naive and didn't understand what it was. And I don't know that, I don't know that any of us back then had the killer instinct you would need. The killer instinct that performers now are like born with. We didn't have a social media all the meatiness that they had to read. They, they could read up on anybody they wanted. They could find out about anything. They could put out their own music. Like, the world was wide open for that generation. And so I feel like those of us back in the East Coast family, we didn't have those those opportunities to figure it out. Yeah. So that's why some of us made it and some of us are still trying to get to whatever place we wanted to get to because it's just not laid out. There's no yeah. There was no blueprint back then. Like, it was a record label... And that's it. So many ways to make it now. Yeah. If Sudden Impact was out right now, they would be, they would, you know, be streaming. They'd be on YouTube. They'd be doing TikTok videos. Like we would know them. They'd be super duper famous as a boy band right now. Right, right. They just didn't get their shot. Right. right. They didn't get their shot, you know? Yeah. Hayden didn't either. Hayden Haidu was such a great, you need to talk to Hayden. If you watch that one for all for one video, you remember Hayden. He sticks out like a sore thumb. Looks like a frat boy on your college rugby team. But that voice, how was this guy not a star? Yeah, I would love to talk to Hayden. Do you know how I sure him? know how to get you in contact with Hayden. I sure that do. That would be fantastic. Yeah, no, that would be, no, you got to talk to Hayden because he's, his, first of all, he's, that's someone I hope puts out an album. Yeah. His voice is, he was like a, a white Wanye. Incredible voice. I mean, all, yeah. all I've heard is is you know from all from. No, one. he had a whole he had a whole album on Motown. It never got released. Mm-hmm. He remade Peg. Um, yeah, Steely Dan. Beautiful. Yes, amazing version of Peg. Never came out. Ooh. It was something. Something happened with the label. I can't remember. But there's a whole album of music that is done. Hayden's album not being released is a tragedy. It's a tragedy yeah. for music. That blue eyed uh-huh. soul. He would have really. Yeah, he did. that's a loss for all of us. We are one step closer to meeting Sudden Impact. Yvette's going to hook me up with Hayden, another act from Michael Bivens' East Coast family who could have been huge. I want to know his story, and not for nothing, he might still be in touch with Sudden Impact, or White Guys, or whatever their name is now. 
We'll talk to him and we'll take a deep dive into the pop landscape of 1991 and how one procedural change in the way charts were compiled changed what the entire world listened to with pop chart columnist Chris Melanfi. That's next time on Waiting for Impact, a Dave Holmes passion project. This has been an Exactly Right production. Written by me, Dave Holmes. Produced by Hannah Kyle Crichton. Recorded, mixed, and sound designed by Andrew Epen. Additional engineering and assembly by Annalise Nelson. Music by Ben Wise. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. Follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Exactly Right. And follow me at Dave Holmes. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Binge the show ad-free on Stitcher Premium. For a free month, head to stitcherpremium.com impact and enter promo code impact when you select a monthly plan. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.